What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, hi, hello, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Favalli coming at you this time without my co-host, Andrew D. Valley. Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox podcast, everybody. We're going to kick off a series here where I and we welcome on Adam Frommel. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math. He's also an editor for Bleacher Report. Follow him on Twitter at Frommel09. That's F-R-O-M-A-L. Zero 09. We're starting an historical series where we're going to rank our top 10 players for every team of this past decade. Uh, these pods will be shorter than our normal length pods. They won't include a long uh, exploratory intro like we're having now. Uh, they will be either our second episode of the week or our third episode of the week. Uh, sometimes we'll drop two in the same week, if not more, if there tends to be a time crunch with the season coming back. That will be overwhelming, but it's what we're both hoping for because we're ready for some basketball as all this is going on. Uh, this will never be the only podcast, though. You'll still get your national coverage, but we ask that you continue downloading, listening to every episode, provide us with feedback. We'll maybe be working out some functional warts as we go through this. We are going to begin with the Atlanta Hawks, though. Before we get started, let's be let's not be rude, and let's ask Adam, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I just wanted to add one thing to your intro, and that's uh, to make sure that you are participating in these Google Forms that we're sending out via the NBA Math Twitter account uh, that gives you a chance to make your voice heard in these historical conversations. We had some a pretty good number of responses for the Hawks. Um, I would imagine it's only going to go up as we continue to do this series. So yeah, uh, get those votes in. At NBA underscore math. Follow us on Twitter, and those will be uh, thrown out. So before we get to this and we'll go through you have some what will end up being honorable mentions from the fan vote at the end and we're going to go 10 through one we have seen each other's lists but they are not identical lists we didn't come to just this collective agreement the way i went about this and then we'll see if adam's methodology was the same was i looked at what a player did while he was with the atlanta hawks so going forward what he has already done or did for his team but then for current players I did also try to include a level of projection where in this case, maybe I have Trey Young higher than some people would, even though he's only played two seasons with Atlanta, because I think he's going to end up being fantastic, obviously. And so that's kind of how I, I tried to weight it. And I was also looking at time spent with the organization for past players. You know, Jamal Crawford, for example, spoiler, didn't make my top 10 because he only qualified for one of the seasons. Uh, we're looking at 2010, 2011 through this year. Hopefully this year's not done, but again, through this year so far. And that's just how I went about it. And so I'm curious if you took a similar approach, measured anything differently. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was slightly different. I didn't do as much projecting with the current players. I, I tried to focus solely on 2010-11 through where we left off in this 2019-20 season. And like you said, that that is hard for, for some of these players. I think Joe Johnson is a great example where we remember him as being so important to this franchise for such a long time. Only two of his seasons actually qualified in this time frame before he was oh, wow. traded off to the Brooklyn Nets. Um, so it's a uh, it's a little tricky with guys like that or with guys like Trey Young, as you mentioned, who are so obviously on the rise and, and going to continue to do big things in Atlanta. Um, so there's there's definitely some level of subjectivity here and just trying to remember how much time each, each player spent. So basically what you're saying is Kevin Herter would have been in your top five if you put in some projection. Oh, absolutely. All right. There we and go. Same, for, same for Cam Radish and DeAndre Hunter and, and all the young guys because they're all obviously going to be great and validate the Luka Doncic trade, right? Well, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'll throw it to you first as the Hardwood Knox OG, but also a guest at this point. Who did you have as your 10th best Hawks player of the decade? So I had Damari Carroll in that number 10 spot. Um, he didn't spend too long in Atlanta during this time period, um, or really in general. He was only there from 2013-14 through 2014-15, so just the two seasons. But he was kind of like that that quintessential 3 and D guy for those more competitive Hawks teams that really spaced everything out, um, really relied a lot on three-point shooting under Mike Budenholzer. Um, and, and even though he didn't really put up big numbers or – have many like really big highlight plays and kind of faded into the background for a lot of his time here. He was, he was pretty important to those teams. My number 10 was Josh Smith. And you have pointed out that you think that that's way too low for Josh Smith. I, I, I think I actually see that argument as I was sort of going through mine in, in my head while you were talking for, for Jay Smoove. He spent, you know, he's seventh on the Hawks in total minutes played this decade was there for three seasons in our uh, decade window. And I think at the time, it was sort of just like, yes, he was maddening, but his game was just also so versatile. You always wish that he maybe took and hit more threes, or maybe it didn't because he missed No, we definitely <laughs> wished he, he took fewer. <laughs> but he was someone who could hit the defensive glass. He was a pretty good uh, passer. He gave you a lot of defensive portability. I don't think, you know, when you look at you'd probably call him like a combo wing at this point, a uh, borderline big and just someone of his size with the block rates and the steal rates that he put up. He was maddening because he was just so damn talented and it never seemed like he, he fully put it together. It always felt like if he was just a little bit better on offense or more efficient as a scorer overall, maybe we're talking about someone who not only that the Hawks maybe keep for longer, but who's still in the NBA perhaps. And so I, Maybe maybe I'm being skewed by that, the fact that he, he's been out of the NBA for a while. But he, he was one of the most frustratingly versatile players I've ever watched play basketball. I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, yeah, I, I have him a little higher in my rankings. Um, I, I do want to just add right now that I it, it's slightly outside of our time frame, but I wish we could see 2009-2010 Josh Smith in today's NBA. That, that was the season he averaged 15.7 points, 8.7 rebounds, 4.2 assists, 1.6 steals, and 2.1 blocks. He took, uh, like I, th I think, seven threes the entire season, which definitely wouldn't fly in, in today's NBA, but he played the right way that season, and he was just everywhere on defense. And it's, it's easy to imagine him now 
like that that prime version on a team like the Rockets where he could play some center um, and just wreaking havoc and switching everywhere. And I kind of I kind of wonder if like the the end of his career, like just the disaster that was the Detroit Pistons tenure and the very forgettable time that he spent with the Los Angeles Clippers and Houston Rockets. And today I remember that he even played for the New Orleans Pelicans, which I did not remember prior to today. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think he all of that has... He saved the Houston Rockets season in that playoff <laughs> series in 2015 too. Right, he had that one big game. But yeah, I think like all, all that, like the downswing at the end of his career has maybe made us forget just how good he was during his best days with the Hawks. It was also probably a matter of I don't think teams valued what he did as much as they do now when he was doing it. So it was, it was sort of like maybe the Hawks didn't really know like how to best deploy him, but I also don't think Josh Smith knew how to best deploy himself. Just some of the shots he took were awful. So many That's long, totally valid. So many long twos throughout his career and just never buried them at even a clip that made you think, oh, okay, like you, you could shoot those. That That's fine. So yep. – I think it was sort of a give and take there where it was, yeah, maybe today's NBA might be better equipped to handle Josh Smith, but I'm not sure that Josh Smith was ever fully equipped to handle Josh Smith. I, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> not at all. Um, I did wa- well, I did want to go over the, the community response too. Okay. Uh, so number 10 from our, our fan input vote was Damari Carroll. So I feel validated by that. Uh, and also just to, to go over the list of players who did get votes whether first place votes or 10th place votes, but did not register in the top 10 of the fan vote. We have Marvin Williams and Kent Bazemore tied at 11th. We have Jamal Crawford at 13th, Zaza Pachulia at 14th. Oh boy. Vince, Vince Carter at 15th. Right. Kirk, Kirk Heinrich at 16th. Jerry Stackhouse at 17th. An interesting tie between Mike Scott and Willie Green, who, uh, who somehow managed to get a ninth place vote at 18th. Um, and Tabo Cephalosha is also tied with those two. And then tied for last place among those who got any votes at all are Tracy McGrady, Kevin Herter, and Pero Antich, which is a group of three names I never thought I would say in the same sentence. <laughs> I guess if you were just saying, technically, who was the best player ever to put on a Hawks jersey this decade, then you can start talking about Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady, not what they did for the team. Oh, I thought you were going to say Pero there. Yeah. <laughs> but just relative to their career. Otherwise, I don't understand Tracy McGrady or Vince Carter getting any votes, unless you just, in Vince Carter's case, really value his off-court mentorship. I'm actually really surprised that Ivan Johnson didn't get a single vote. I thought that as much of a fan favorite as he was, because he was just a ridiculous human being, that he would have registered somewhere. Yeah, I mean... I. I totally forgot about him until you just mentioned him. So, I think But now you won't forget about him for a while. Well, he's actually going to be bumped up into my top five now that you actually said something. Oh, perfect. March Sadness is rolling on and on and on. Hardwood Knox listeners, we know. This has been the longest decade of our lives, and it's, it's somehow only March. Bizarre, right? But you don't have to indulge in March Sadness all the time, thanks to BetOnline.ag. With currently no NBA, NHL, or college basketball, or really anything else for that matter, including Formula One, golf, all that, all those good sports, you might think there's nothing to bet on. You'd be wrong, though. BetOnline still has hundreds of places to wager, from their online casino to poker and blackjack, all of which are open 24 hours a day and all online. Sports aren't totally done. There's still mixed martial arts and esports. It continues to be on the rise. If you're into entertainment, you can still bet on American Idol, the elections, the spelling bee, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. 
Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. You will receive a 50% welcome bonus by using it. Bet online, your new ticket to online action. Who do you have at number nine? Uh, number nine, I have Kent Bazemore, and I actually I really struggled with how to, to rank him and, and Damari Carroll, just because I think they had pretty similar contributions. Um, Bazemore was much more of a transition threat, um, probably not quite as reliable or at least streakier as a shooter, but they both kind of exemplified that three and D role that was so important to those space it out, five out Hawks offenses. So can I make a last minute swap? Because we actually weren't in lockstep here, but the more I'm thinking about it, with who I have at nine, I want to be a little bit bolder with him because I think that he's absolutely really good. So I'm going with Kent Bazemore at, at number nine as well. And I do still feel like people most associate him with the Warriors because of sort of the the sideline cheerleading then and all those he great was so good at it. videos and gifts we got from him. But his career was made in Los Angeles with the Lakers and then with with the Hawks. The one thing I always found interesting with him, I feel like he was always overrated defensively and then underrated offensively. His last year in Atlanta wasn't great, uh, but he provided more secondary ball handling than I think that people really ever realized. And so that was just something I always found interesting with him because a lot of people were like, he's this three and D guy. Like he never really shot the highest percentage from three and his defense was like, yeah, I mean, if he could defend true twos, he was fine. A little overextended. If you put him on actual wings, maybe he could handle some point guards. And so I always kind of thought that there was this mistaken perception of what he actually did best, if that makes any sense. No, I, I think that's totally fair, and it's probably the area he grew in most in Atlanta was his facilitating. He he came in there not really having handled the ball whatsoever during his time with the Lakers and the Warriors, um, and I guess he did with the Lakers a little bit because they they had like all their point guards injured during the brief time he was there. Um, but yeah, they the Hawks really brought more of that distributing ability out of him, and he developed into a pretty solid secondary hub by the end of his career. Um, also the, the fan, the, well, the fan vote at number nine too, I guess sh- I should probably say those as I unveil my picks as well, um, is, is Dennis Schroeder, uh, who is interesting because neither of us have him in our top 10. Um, I, I'm not sure he was ever good for the Hawks, at least like he was or, or is with the thunder right now. Just, you know, the, the inefficiencies and the inability to, uh, to do anything on defense, uh, just held him back throughout his time in Atlanta. I thought I would, I would be with you there too. And maybe it's just harder because he spent so much time as a backup too. And perhaps that's sort of tainted in a way, but he didn't even, I had a harder time leaving and it wasn't especially hard, but I had a harder time leaving Marvin Williams off than I did Dennis. Same for me to sort of contextualize how, uh, that might've sounded like sexualize. I meant to say contextualize, uh, how I was thinking. So I'm, I'm surprised that in the fan vote, he finished that high. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. I think his game was more glamorous just because of the speed. He created more highlights um, and probably seemed more important to those teams than he actually was. So that, that's that's my best shot in an explanation there. That's fair. And maybe he's the guy where it's like we should be either surprised that he made the list at all or that he wasn't higher. That should have been his variance. He should be number five or not on the list at all. None of those yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Who do you have at number eight we're up to? Uh, so at number eight, I have Joe Johnson, uh, which was a really tough one to place just because he was he's one of the better players in Atlanta's franchise history, 
but only two of his seasons counted for this before he was traded to the Nets. Um, so he actually did make an all-star team in both of those seasons, but it almost seemed more like a legacy selection than anything else. Um, you know, his, his three point shot fell off in the first of those two seasons. It rebounded in the second, but he wasn't really, he wasn't really impacting the winning cause quite as much. Um, and I, I think he, he kind of took a secondary, more of a secondary role during those seasons. Um, and then also the, the fan vote here has John Collins. Uh, and he, he was an interesting one. Just the, the, the consensus had him in the bottom half of the rankings, but he did actually get some, some votes for higher placement as well. So I had him number eight and he was initially my number nine. I bumped him up. The reason I don't have him higher. And I I just want to, this is how good that John Collins is, but just particularly on offense. And so the players over the past two seasons who are averaging at least 20 points, 10 rebounds and one made three pointer per 36 minutes while hitting them at the same clip, or better as John Collins, which is 37.4%, is Carl Anthony Towns and Christian Wood, weighted by mostly this season, and he only appeared in 80 games. So that company he's in is pretty incredible. The reason I don't have him higher, and I actually think he's been a little bit more viable defensively at the four this year, where a lot of people are worried about his fit with Clint Capella moving forward. Offensively, it's going to be fine. He's shooting like a zillion percent from three since the middle of December or January. Uh, defensively, I sort of get it, but I do think he's been a little bit better at the four this season. The reason I don't have him higher is I'm just not sure how much longer he's going to be on the Hawks because maybe defensively I could see where there are problems with him and Capella on the floor. Maybe Atlanta doesn't want to max him out uh, with his extension, and so they move him at next year's trade deadline or just let him leave in restricted free agency or something. I think the latter outcome is far less unlikely. If you told me that the Hawks are willing to pay him, though, that they're going to extend him or they're going to re-sign him in restricted free agency, I'd probably vault him up another spot or two. It's a good segue because I have John Collins in my number seven spot. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's tough because so much of what he's done has come during a dry spell for this organization where they just haven't really been able to win games. Um, But it's also easy to see just how much he's improved already in these two and a half seasons. Uh, and I think it's partially because the Hawks kind of treated his role without much clarity at the beginning. He, he kind of bounced between playing the five and playing the four and tried to develop skills in both of those roles. And they really started to come together a little bit more um, during this season, aside from when he was suspended, of course. And you, you look at like his three point shooting where at Wake Forest in two years, he took one three pointer and missed it. And this year he's taking 3.6 per game and making 40.1% of them, which is an amazing development for a guy who's really become a stretch big and is only going to increase his value because of that. Yeah, I mean, you just look at the number of three-pointers he's taken over the last – I mean, you can look at his NBA career. He's 130 of 352 from deep for his career, Mm. 36.9%, more than solid, particularly, like you said, he wasn't shooting threes really at at Wake Forest. But just the last two seasons – He's like he's over 300 attempts just in those two seasons. He would have been on pace um, to probably take 200 plus this year uh, had the regular season been finished. So he's come a long way offensively. He's even a little bit more comfortable doing some stuff with the ball in his hands. And there are very few guys, I think, that are both pick and pop and pick and roll where you could trust him as the rim runner. But also now he's that threat from from outside the arc and and that's what makes him that's what I think is going to make the the fit with Clint Capella offensively so easy 
he's he's almost become underrated in that sense uh, offensively to me. I, I understand the the defensive qualms though. I think we'd be talking about him as an all-star right now had he not been suspended at the beginning of this season. I mean, looking at the Eastern Conference, I don't I don't think you could doubt that one bit. Yeah. And then uh just as uh, as the the record keeping, the number 7 for the fan vote was Josh Smith, who we've uh already talked about and I'll turn it over to you for your 7th. I have Damari Carroll and like you said at the top of this, he didn't spend so much time with the the Hawks during this period. And maybe I'm sort of just romanticizing that Hawks team from 2015 uh, where they were all just named player of the month. And I know that they were steamrolled eventually in the playoffs that year, but he, what he did defensively for them, it was a lot. Like he was in charge of defending the toughest assignments, perimeter assignments, basically night in and night out. And the Hawks were for that one season, a 60 win team. And he was such a huge part of that. He came to at that time, typify the three and D specialty. He was also not to the extent that Kent Bazemore was, but he could sort of make these simple passes while he had the ball in his hands. And so not someone that you would ever lean to fully to have that role, but to be able to make those quick second passes. uh, I think people underestimate how valuable he was on both ends of the floor to that Atlanta team. You could, again, if you told me that John Collins was going to be on the Hawks past next year, I'd put him above Damari Carroll in a heartbeat, but he just, I, I'm, again, I might be romanticizing the uh, those Hawks teams that had Horford, Millsap, Corver, Damari Carroll, and Jeff Teague. He just, he stands out to me during this period than a lot of, um, more so than a lot of other players. I think he might deserve some more credit that I'm giving him to just because of the willingness to, to sacrifice for the betterment of that team. Now, these were some of his prime years. Like he easily could have wanted to, post bigger box score numbers and and take more shots and he, he never seemed anything but content filling that that role that kind of went under under the radar for the most part sort of that what if is if he never because he was basically having knee problems before he left Atlanta and so if he never has those knee problems and they sort of derailed his career mm-hmm. in general I wonder if maybe he stays in Atlanta past that perhaps they were never going to give him the contract that Toronto did at the time that's still just that, that's just one of the the, the better what ifs. But again, the defensive workload that he shouldered was, was through the roof during his time there. Yeah. Moving on to who do you have for number six? Uh, number six, I have Josh Smith. I, I wavered a lot between whether I wanted him or John Collins to be higher. Um, it's, it's tough with, with smooth just because it's hard to remember like exactly what he did after, as we talked about after the end of his, uh, his NBA career, um, and he, he never really seemed to, to fully maximize what his on-court abilities were. Um, I'm actually more I- intrigued by the, the fan selection of Kyle Korver at number six. Um, I, I know we both have him yet to come in ours, uh, but it's, uh, he, he's definitely a fascinating player in the last decade for Atlanta, just because he was such a, a specialist, but he was, so impactful as a specialist and had so many memorable moments between the three point streak and the dunks that, that he threw down in transition um, during that, that magical 60 win season. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, my who uh, the fan vote at Kyle Corver at number six, I actually feel like that's almost low. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we both have him at number five, not to Spoilers. spoil anything. Yeah. My my number six, I was tempted to drag down below both Carroll and again Collins was so tough for me. I just wanted to keep moving him up. I have Joe Johnson 
only two seasons with Atlanta fall under this window. The reason I have him bumped up, and there's a, I would possibly put him higher if I felt like he had the trademark Atlanta Hawks moment, at least during this time, and he doesn't. But he's the, aside from Trey Young, when you look at this list, he's the closest thing they have to a primary scorer during this time. And so his 2011-2012 season uh, specifically, uh, he was just a monster offensively. It wasn't his highest scoring season, but he shot 38.8% from three on 5.4 attempts per game. And there was this level of consistency to him. Where people, you know, people joke about ISO Joe, but someone who could go out there and at least competently get from scratch buckets, uh, you, uh, to me, you almost have to respect that. And you know, over these two years, effective field goal percentage below 50, I, I totally get it. But through these two seasons, over 18 points a game, more than four assists per game, and just having that dependable source of, of offense and someone who's going to draw some of the tougher D defensive assignments against him, not him covering them, uh, and still be able to, to be that source of offense, it's, it's huge to me. In retrospect, I almost kind of wish I put him below John Collins, but we've already talked about my, my moral dilemma there with, with John. Right. Yeah, I, I think the, the versatility and the the from scratch creation are just such big points in in Iso Joe's favor. You know, he uh, during these during these last couple of seasons in Atlanta, he was creating around like sixty percent of his of his buckets without using an assist, which is really important from a wing player, especially because you know he was capable of attacking from the post or you know working from the elbows or taking threes, and that ability to draw constant attention from a primary defender on the other team was a really big deal. There's, there's no doubt about that. Still, he's going to be the one that I feel like insofar as people listen to this, that might think that uh, probably the most overrated one you had him at nine. I had him at eight, eight. So just because he only spent two seasons there. So I would totally understand. It's so hard because of the two seasons. Yeah. Uh, You already spoiled number five for the two of us, but take it away with, with Kyle Korver. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about those three-point shots, right? I mean, uh, just he was that that constant spot-up threat. I, I think the the play I associate most with him in, La- in Atlanta is just curling off one screen, catching it at the top of the key, and just like leaning in a little bit as he shot. And it was the same form every time. It always looked good. He made uh, 45.2% of his threes while taking 5.5 per game in Atlanta over five seasons all of which do qualify for uh, for this time period. So it's, you know, he was an all-star that one season when the Hawks won 60 games. It felt kind of like a more of an inclusion because the team was so good right. than anything he did. It's one of the weirder all-star selections we've seen in a while. But at the same time, he, like, he made 49.2% of his threes that year while taking six per game. Like, that, as we know in this mo- this fully modernized NBA where everyone is shooting like that, that matters a lot. Can you guess where Kyle Korver ranks during this time period and minutes played for the Hawks too? I'm not sure that people realize just how extensive his involvement was. I'm going to guess fourth. Third, behind Third. only Millsap and Al Horford. I thought Teague might have been ahead of him too. Uh, you are absolutely, maybe he was, he was above Millsap, excuse me. Teague leads the team, okay. Corford, and then Corver. Yeah, I oh, yeah, mean, all in the same ballpark, I would imagine. I did not look that up, so I'm spitballing here. I was just trying to look at sample size, and so it was not that I I wasn't like floored, but when you just when you think about 
like Kyle Corver being third in minutes during this time, or at least being ahead of, of Paul Millsap there was, was fairly interesting to me, but you just look, I mean, the dude is just a sniper and some of the things I, I know he wasn't really uh, allowed to dribble, but he could make some, some nice passes at times. And the shots that he's taking from three, you know, those are not, they were not all these easy shots. Just they're so quick coming around screens uh, needs like sub zero seconds to, to get them off. And when you look at this specific window, there are only four players that hit more threes than him, Steph, Clay, Harden, and Dame. And so that's like incredible company to be in as a guy who is firmly below uh, those superstars that are in front of him and just so valuable to those, to the best Hawks teams in recent memory that we remember opening things up for everybody and being someone that could just bend uh, the defenses as not, not just the shots he's making, but watching him move off the ball when he was closer to his prime. Uh, just, I, I feel like it counted as a form of cardio watching Kyle Korver move off the ball <laughs> during these years. And he's all about those unique types of cardio during the offseason training. Uh, but I, I actually don't think we've mentioned what I think is the, the most underrated part of his game, and that's his defensive rebounding. He was always really good at reading those caroms, and he had such strong hands. Like It was amazing watching how many times he would be in the land of bigs and somehow come down with the ball. Like if he got his hands on it, he was going to get the defensive rebound. Yeah, definitely an underrated part of his game. I'm looking at his defensive rebounding percentage during this time, and I I would not have expected it to be over 12. Yeah, yeah, it's really solid. Who do you Um, have at number four? Before I do that, I'm going to tell you that Joe Johnson was fifth in the fan vote, and he actually had one of the most interesting voting breakdowns too because – only the top finisher um, on both of our ballots and the fan vote had more first place votes than him, but he was also left off almost half of the ballots. So there was a really big split between people who thought he was there. Actually the same number of people thought that he was in the first and second spot as had him off of the top 10 entirely. It makes me feel a little bit better about putting him number six. And the number of times I've tried to skip over the fan results, it's clear, it's clear that I don't care about you people. I'm a terrible person. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's impressive that you've maintained this like veil of caring for so long. <laughs> and it's just all being shattered now. I'm doing everything I can to, to involve our Twitter followers and our fans and our faithful listeners here. So, uh, self-quarantine has just... It's, <laughs> I've lost the ability to, to even fake it anymore, apparently. Uh, who do you have at number four? Uh, I have the same person as the fan vote, and that is Trey Young, who was really hard to rank because I, I think you can make a convincing argument that his current season is the best we've seen from any Hawk during this decade time frame, but it's only his second season. So w- what are we supposed to do with him here? <laughs> well, look at where he's going. Just... The, the the percentage he shoots on unassisted threes is through the roof. You have to cover him, or at least try to, as soon as he crosses the timeline. And what I really think, look, he's a defensive disaster. There's, uh, it, it, there's just no other way around that. But a lot of people were worried about, well, what's he going to do inside the arc? He is, uh, I've seen takes where they say that he doesn't elevate the play of his teammates. And that's just not true. He's a fantastic that's passer. totally BS, yeah. And, and he's really done a better job than I would have expected at getting looks in around the rim. His his floater game is legitimate, and he seems to know uh, how to how and when to get his shots off when he's in traffic and putting them just out of reach 
of the the longer arms that are in front of him and just someone who keeps the defense in perpetual tilt and the Hawks run this season about a league average offense when he's on the court. And so that's what people have used as evidence uh, that maybe he didn't deserve to be an all-star or he's not as far along as, as we think, perhaps there's some truth to that, but they are terrible when he's off the court. They just don't have any outlets aside from him. And I think that makes his job actually harder when he's on the floor, because you can't do these things that the Warriors have done with Stephen Curry, maybe to too much extremes in the past where you can get, imagine if Trey Young got to get running off the ball a little bit. I feel like that's a part of his game that not could, that could not only be expanded, but something that would actually be work and turned into a weapon. And so if you get him a secondary ball handler, rather than senior citizen, Jeff Teague at this point, I feel like those are some things that you could look at. And so when you look at his trajectory, I do think there's a chance that he ends up being, let's say one of the three best players in Hawks history. I think that's an actual consideration. I know you said he'll never pass uh, Pettit. There's also uh Neek that you have to consider. I certainly think that he is at least right now on the course to surpass the, the Al Horford, Paul Millsap tier. Yeah. I, I think that assuming health that three might be the floor as hard as it is to get to that number one spot past the, the two unquestionable legends in franchise history. But yeah, I mean, he, the trajectory he's on is is astronomical right now. And I'm actually not as concerned about his defense as most people seem to be. Not because he's good at defense. He's not. He's terrible. But because point guard defense is really hard in today's NBA. And the the difference between a really good point guard defender and a really bad one isn't necessarily as important as the differences between other positions, uh, floors and right. ceilings there. And you have to remember that Atlanta has done a really bad job putting complementary defensive talent around him. You know, if you have a guy who's basically a traffic cone on the defensive end, you should probably have some sort of rim protection waiting behind him that isn't John Collins figuring out how to play defense at the NBA level. And it just seems like while while this front office has done a good job accruing talent and making sure that there are enough assets during this ongoing rebuild, it hasn't necessarily put together the right types of players to to mitigate Trey's biggest flaw. I, I think that's changed the perception of both his defense and his overall game, even though it should be abundantly clear that his his offense between the passing, he's probably one of the five best passers in the NBA right now, and his scoring, which is obviously ridiculous um you know those those so clearly outweigh the defensive warts right and just the efficiency with which he's doing it above average efficiency in general relative to league averages and the level of difficulty on his shots is just absurd I also kind of think he gets to the line a little bit more than than people realize as well so he's just this offensive force from every imaginable angle he was my he's my number three actually so I won't spend too much time on him when we get there my number four is actually Jeff Teague, always just there. This, I feel like, could be maddening, but was also the steadying force. And he was never this big-time floor general, but he was also an okay creator when he maybe wasn't turning the ball over every five seconds out of the pick and roll. Took some maddening shots, but on some of those other Hawks teams, he was valuable because he could play off the ball as well from some of their other players. I feel like he was, could he be compared to maybe like an Alex Smith just saying he was a game manager? and that goes really underappreciated. Perhaps Alex Smith had more big play potential than Jeff Teague, but that's really the sort of vibe that 
I always got from him. I did not anticipate having to defend Jeff Teague as much as I'm going to have to here. Um, he was my number three. He was the fans' number three. Um, so all all three voting parties had uh, Teague and, and Trey in some combination at three and four. But I think he was so much more than just there. Like, yeah, it, the the thereness and the longevity of his time in Atlanta over this past decade is what ultimately pushed him above Trey. Who has Can we make a, that an official stat for NBA math? Thereness? The thereness? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I think Trey obviously is the higher ceiling. He's obviously more impactful on a per game basis. But like, let's not sell prime Teague too short. Like the I guy was in, so, I fourth. You I know, but, but then you said he was just there. Like okay, I said he was a his, steadying presence. That's kind of the same thing as just <laughs> there. <laughs> but like in his in his prime, he's averaging sixteen points and seven assists with under three turnovers per game. He's keying everything they do on offense with his quickness. Like how many times did he break down defenders and get into the lane and hit a kickout pass to one of the many shooters around him? Like his, his ability to operate off the dribble is what made those offenses go. And he seemed to always make good decisions. And those, those teams were best when he was hitting his floater, which was inconsistent at best. He did have some seasons where it just clicked. Everything worked. And you see the results when the Hawks win 60 games. Um, But that that didn't that didn't last as as long as many Atlanta fans would have liked for it to, um, and the the end of the, the season right after that one was definitely a a dramatic decrease. Even as he kind of put things together more from three, and his his latest stint in Atlanta is definitely working to <laughs> knock down the rankings. Uh, but yeah, I think he was he was he was about so much more than his thereness. I will say Jeff T. Maybe let's say. 2013 to 2016, maybe 17, Jeff Teague was better defensively. Dependable there than I think a lot of people were probably would probably give him credit for. So there, there's my hat tip to Jeff Teague since you're claiming I shit all over him, even though I just compared him to the GOAT, Alex Smith. Uh, who was the fans? Did we already reveal the fans number four? Yeah, the, the fans number four was Trey and number three was Teague, who I also have at three. So I have I have Trey Young at three, and you've heard my reasoning. Do you have a problem with Trey being over Teague? That's probably the no. question we should ask. Um, I, I think it just depends on what you're valuing, and, and you've made it clear that you're using a little bit of projection here. Um, and I don't think there's anyone who would say that that Teague is is better than Trey Young. It's just it's a matter of how much you value the thereness. <laughs> uh, kind of a surprise. Uh, iPhone call coming in during this thing. We we go live here. It it always seems like look there it goes again. I continue to get. I think you have to take it on the air now. No, I can't do that because it, it was my father in law. So I don't I don't really know what that's going to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> who did you have for? I feel like we're going to be consensus now. We're consensus of the fans too. Yeah, the top two. Yeah. So n- number two for both of us. Who did we have? We had Paul Millsap. So good. So good. So underrated. So good. Just did everything. He could have, I actually didn't double check this. I feel like he should have made, and, and maybe he did. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. He, I feel like he definitely should have made an all-defensive team during his time with the Hawks. Did he? I don't, I don't think he did. I don't he made know. one. He, he made, made one. Okay. He made one during the, the 61 season. Or no, during the 48 and 34 season in 2015-16. But he should have made more than that. Yeah, he made, wow. Yeah, 2015, the second team all-defense. I would have thought that he... 
even 2015, 2016, I feel like maybe he should have been first team. I have to look at those results there. I feel like I remember him getting like some fringe love in defensive player of the year discussions too. Am uh, I making that so, up? No, certainly. Dude, so looking at guys who cross the the threshold of he's a big, and so like I, but I put him in that year. Like he was the same, just sort of anchor that Draymond Green was for the Warriors. Probably not as, probably not as extensive there. But that's the type of defender that Paul Millsap was in his prime, where he could defend basically everyone. And so that was a, a huge part of Atlanta's success during that time. I feel like he's so ingrained into the success of the Hawks that you look at it and it's almost a little bit wild that he was only there. What was it? Four seasons? Only four seasons. Yeah. It makes you feel like he should have been there a lot longer, but he's the clear cut number two for me. And Trey yeah, th- will eventually pass him, but as of right yes. now, it's hard to put him any lower than that. No, I, I totally agree with you. Um, it's it's interesting that like Millsap seems to be one of the most forgettable great players of this of this decade, probably regardless of which franchise we're talking about, just because he was so good at everything, and I'm not quite sure what was like truly elite aside from the defensive versatility and his pump fake. All right. That's fair. Number one, you want to reveal anything? I mean, like, is anyone going to be surprised that it's Al Horford here? Uh, excuse me. How is it not Mike Scott emoji tattoo King? Yeah. I mean, he had some, uh, some very memorable transition dunks and threes and emojis. And that's all I've got on Mike Scott. Al Horford forever underrated. Maybe not so much this season, but (laughs) one of my, not my favorite things, but one of the most ridiculous things is how often, particularly during the tail end of his time in Atlanta, that people just wanted to still call him a power forward. And it's like, you know, I never understood that even earlier in his career. If you look at the minutes breakdowns, it said that he logged a lion's share of his minutes at the five, but at least there was more time, uh, you know, especially before Millsap came along, he had some seasons where he, they were just larger splits. Al mm-hmm. Horford was a center, and he was just so good. That just did never did. I guess anything you could say at a superstar level, though. I do think he came. Uh, he was at that. He was at that level defensively for at least a few seasons, including both of his years in Boston, uh, or maybe all three of his seasons in Boston. Excuse me. But just did everything and did it really well at fringe star levels. Let's say on offense from facilitating from being able to, to pump fake and put the ball on the floor from being a pick and pop option at a time when those weren't nearly as common as they are now. And I never understood just the, the lack of appreciation for him. I know it was exacerbated in Boston because uh, just because of the, some of his performances and you look at, Oh, Tristan Thompson absolutely uh, owned him in certain matchups, but, and then even the Hawks teams, you know, them getting, uh, steamrolled by the the Cavs in in 2016 playoffs. Is that where they just they won 60 games and went 4-0? I think that's the year. Was that 2015? Yeah. So uh, that's the fun thing about history is they it, all the years just just meld together. That's how you know they're getting old. So forever underappreciated in in my book, and uh, he might he he not might he's going to go down. I think is just one of the most underrated players in the NBA of of all time. Right, so we just we just said that Paul Millsap is like the one of the most underappreciated, overlooked stars, and in some ways it feels like Horford is essentially like a rich man's version of Paul Millsap, which I think is appropriate for 
the largely forgettable Atlanta Hawks to have those two guys in their top two spots until Trey surpasses them both. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't really have that much to add on on your description of him aside from like, if you have one image of the non-Trey Hawks over the past decade, it's either going to be a Joe Johnson isolation shot or Al Horford elbow out like 15 foot elbow jumper. Yeah, and also the way he, for a big, probably one of the best transition defenders among big men, I would think, ever. And more switchable than people gave him credit for, too. He had those in his prime, at least. He had those. Uh, no, that's not a good comparison. He was just, he was never the quickest, but he was just always, let's talk about his defensive thereness. He was just always in the right spot that he needed to be and where he's able to use his length or put space between guys to keep smaller players in front of him. And like you said, super switchable at his peak. Yeah, I think he's another player who gets a lot of a lot of credit for his thereness. That's an official stat now. Let's start using it. His thereness. Absolutely. Uh, that wraps it up for us here. Sub 45 minutes. I think that's solid. We'll try and go a little bit quicker in in the future. Although if we spent 45 minutes on the Hawks, some of these pods might last a, a couple hours, perhaps. <laughs> uh, uh, follow Adam on Twitter at Frommel09. Follow NBA Math at NBA underscore math. Follow the Blue Wire Podcast Network at Blue Wire Pod. Shout out to our sponsor, betonline.ag. As always, they make this podcast possible, so please use that promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Uh, you can follow me or Andy on Twitter, if you please, as well, at Andrew D. Bailey, at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. And please, I've stopped doing this at the top of the pod to try and expedite things, but make sure that you continue to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Still the best way to, to help us out. Make sure you're downloading every episode. If you've done all those things, refer us. Retweet the promos on Twitter. Tell a friend, family member, coworker. Don't tell a random person on the street because you should not be meeting random people on the street at this time. Hashtag social distancing. Until next time, though, I leave everybody with a shout-out to Josh, Mo- Josh Smith, Jay Smooth. Shout-out to him. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.